Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Proverbs. Uh, we've got extra Bibles in the back, so if you need one, slip up your hand. And uh, we've got church members that walk down the aisles and give you a copy if you'd like a hard copy. If you're with the threes and fours class, thank you for worshiping with us. You guys are dismissed back to your class. Proverbs, we're, we're going to start, uh, as you see on the screen, in Proverbs chapter 27, <clears throat> verse Nine. So we're in a little bit of a weird, uh, probably four or five week season in the church where we have been working through the book of Proverbs. Since January, we've worked through chapters one through nine, and we've taken every single verse, every single paragraph, and we just worked sequentially through those chapters, passage by passage, trying to understand what was there. And that works in Proverbs 1 through 9 because Proverbs 1 through 9 is made up of these individual uh, lectures or speeches by Lady Wisdom or the Wise Father trying to get us to understand how to know God and how to live in God's world God's way. In other words, how to understand wisdom. But once you hit chapter 10, verse 1, you get into the Proverbs in the kind of style that you think about when you think about the Proverbs. It's a kind of section that feels like fortune cookie slogans, right? Just, just individual phrases, and there's over 350 of them, and they're these couplets of sentences that mean something, but they're not necessarily connected to the sentences before it, not necessarily connected to the sentences after it. So we're not going to work verse by verse by verse from chapter 20 all the way through chapter 29 for the next 10 years. What we're going to do is take themes... And ask, okay, what are all of these unconnected sort of wise sayings repeating and then teaching about particular themes? So last week we talked about speech. Um, the second most mentioned theme in the book of Proverbs behind wisdom itself is how we use our words. The power of speech. So that was all last week, but this week the theme that we're going to pick up is related the theme that we're going to pick up this week in Proverbs is the theme of friendship, right? Which will have some significant overlap with the theme of speech. And so we will be starting with chapter 27, verse 9, and that'll be our starting place. And then we'll try to see what, what does the entirety of Proverbs have to say about this particular theme. So beginning in verse 9, I'm going to read verse 9, and then we're just going to pause and pray for understanding. Verse 9 of Proverbs 27 reads this. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Lord, we come to you, and um, I just ask and I pray that you would please empower me to say true things from your scripture. This is a, uh, I'm not used to preaching in this way. We're trying to take all these verses across a large section and discern what it is you're trying to teach us in this book. And so, God, I just pray that you would show me your grace and your mercy, and you would empower me with your spirit um, to convey the intention of the, 
the Spirit's inspiration of this book of the Bible. You have given us this and preserved this for thousands of years for us to do something with it, to hear it and to apply it and to live it. And so God, I just pray you would work the miracle of, of clear speech this morning, explaining what it is that your word teaches about a topic that the whole world is desperate for, God. Help us to see your design in it. And God, I pray for the hearers in the room. God, that you would open their eyes to true things for their scriptures they've not considered and that you would use this this time together to build a supernatural community that reflects the kingdom of God and how it will be for all of eternity. Father, we pray, do these things in our midst by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 9. Let me read it again. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. So this is what the sermon is going to look like. We're going to look at one big sort of foundational theological truth and then four marks of what a biblical or what a good friend is. And here's the uh, theological foundation. Truth number one is this. Friendship is God's good idea. Individual proverbs, they most often, they appear as a couplet of parallel sayings that interpret one another. So in this case, the first half of the couplet provides us an analogy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad. A pleasing aroma, a fragrance can actually affect or impact the things that you are feeling emotionally. A fragrance can actually make you feel a certain type of way, right? So perhaps it's a particular dish at Thanksgiving or at Christmas. Maybe a campfire smell on a cool evening. Uh, buttery popcorn at the movies. Maybe someone's home smells a certain way. You, you, maybe you have a certain grandmother that, that you walk into the home and it just it feels like grandma's house. And there's a sense in which fragrances can induce a certain sense of well-being and satisfaction, and, and that's the case in our world. Uh, but imagine a world without deodorant warm showers or good-smelling scents that are very natural, right? In this world in which Proverbs was written, you smell a, a good, sweet-smelling sense. It's a sign of luxury. It's a sign of safety. It's a sign of gladness. It's a sign of someone being very well-to-do because they could afford soap, right? The second half of the couplet then draws out the analogy. The sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest Counsel, the, the comparison, the analogy is that friendship is like a sweet-smelling fragrance that can bring something to you, that can bring joy or gladness to your human existence. Like so many things in our world, friendship is a gift of an infinitely loving God. It is a gift of grace in His created world. It's a gift that flows from the heart of God for the joy of mankind, from the vastness of God's beautiful creation to the diverse way in which we taste foods to the sweet sound of music. God created us to enjoy stuff. I mean, do you believe that a good pot of gumbo comes from the heart of God, right? That, that, that the taste, the way they work together, which brings a certain kind of feeling of happiness or joy, 
That, that comes from God, that, that God actually created the world in such a way where particular things in his created order would be enjoyable to you and that that gladness would then provoke you to worship the one who gave the good gift, right? It's part of God's design. Wisdom, as we've defined in Proverbs, what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing God and God's way in God's world. Wisdom is the way in which God created the world, designed the world, and friendship is a part of that created existence for our good and for His glory. It flows from the heart of God. Unlike any being in the world, friendship is a part of God's nature. He has forever been Father, Son, and Spirit in an eternal friendship even within himself. The creation of humanity, in a sense, therefore, is a divine friendship overflowed into created beings that can enjoy one another and enjoy fellowship with their creator. In fact, the only thing articulated as being not good in the garden of God's creation before the fall of mankind was that Adam was alone before the creation of Eve. That statement that it was not good that Adam be alone is a sign to all readers for thousands of years after that companionship, relationship, friendship, and community are part of God's design to make your heart glad. In fact, we've seen in Proverbs already that if you live a life without pursuing friendships, you run against the grain of God's design, and it is contrary to sound judgment. So let me read a proverb for you, Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself, seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment. Isolation in the scriptures is a result of the fall of mankind. It's not the way we were made to exist. And according to Proverbs 18:1, isolation is a sinful choice. Typically when we think about isolation, we think of someone being thrust into a circumstance that is unavoidable and it's everyone else's fault on the outside. It's the circumstance's fault. Proverbs 18:1, however, says whoever isolates himself then gives a reason behind that isolation. And the Proverbs doesn't blame everyone else around the individual. The Proverbs actually talks about the individual. Whoever isolates himself, why is it happening? They seek their own desire. It's not thrusted upon them as we would like to think. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, we are isolated most often because we seek our own desires. We are most often isolated because of our selfishness and an affront against sound judgment. While not always the case, but more often than not, isolation is a result of an inward heart circumstance more than it is our outward social circumstances. Friendship is hard in a fallen world. Because of sin, friendship no longer comes easy in the world, no more than our own purity and holiness comes easy in the world. You are not naturally holy, and you are not naturally a good friend. <laughs> friendship 
Now, in a fallen world, friendship that's sweet and makes the soul glad, now it must be worked for. Now it must be protected. Now it must be preserved. Now it must be pursued. Now it must be uh, protected from being misunderstood. Our modern society especially struggles with this particular concept. Social media and smartphones have changed us and how we relate to one another. Friendship has been redefined. I have 1,924 friends, according to my Facebook account this past Thursday, and over 200 friend requests I've yet to respond to. So if that's you, I apologize. It's just a little overwhelming for me. Social media has changed our definitions for friendships. The immediacy of communication has created impossible expectations placed on friendships. The insecurity that social media has created in our generation has affected the intimacy of our connection in friendships. We are the most easily offended generation, I think, in the history of the world. Because we are incredibly insecure from our continual comparing ourselves to others. And insecurity is the destroyer and the preventer of any good friendship. Insecurity in friendship comes from the same kind of shame that causes Adam and Eve to hide themselves in the garden for fear of being exposed. And then to blame one another when they are exposed. Simultaneously, we live in a uniquely fast-moving and busy society, right? We feel that we're constantly losing a race, constantly dropping the balls that we're supposed to be juggling just to make ends meet, keep up with the Joneses, and take our kids to all their extracurriculars. We are too busy for friendships in so many ways. We live in a societal moment where cancel culture is a thing. It's a common term that we understand and know of. And all of these factors make biblical friendship hard. And you throw in the fact that every friendship, in its essence, is two sinful people trying to come together. And sometimes friendship feels impossible, right? So what do Proverbs have to say about the making of a quality friend? Everyone wants this, non-Christians and Christians alike feel a deep need for friends the same way they, they need water and food to, to eat. So what does Proverbs say about what it's supposed to look like? What are we supposed to be striving for, for, for? Well, firstly, Proverbs would not recognize all of my Facebook friends as the kind of friends I need to thrive in the world. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24 Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs makes this distinction between many companions that perhaps you know on a surface level, and then that kind of friend that sticks very near to you, as if they were your own blood Relative. This proverb leads us to believe that we need some kinds of friendships that are deeper than the mere acquaintances and pleasantries. 
And the, the, the mere friendliness that you get in a hello, how you doing on a Sunday morning. Now, we're going to have those companions, of course. All of us should have companions like that, even in this church. We should have acquaintances who we enjoy, whom we really do love, who we want what's best for them. But if all we ever have is acquaintances, this proverb says we are in danger of ruin. So what's the difference between the kind of friend who sticks closer to the brother and the companion that if I just have a bunch of those, I'll be led to destruction, <laughs> to ruin? What's the difference between a companion and a friend that sticks closer to a brother? How do we pursue that kind of friendship? Well, the idolized world of TV and media has wrongly made us think that true and genuine friendships should come easy to us that they should be natural for us, that they should be unworked for. That's just not true. Good and healthy relationships in this broken world, they take work, they must be pursued, they must be strived for. You've got to be a good friend before you'll begin to have good friends. Friendship is God's good idea, but we're in a broken world, right? So what are the marks of that good friend? Well, let's read 27 verse 9 again. Draw some principles here. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Four marks of a good friend. Number one, good friends earnestly desire the best for each other. That word earnest in verse 9 means passionate or deep soul emotion. The, the sweetness of a friend in this verse includes a deep soul passion to counsel or to guide someone else into what is absolutely best for them. The sweetness of a friend is how you genuinely desire their most ultimate good. A good friend wants what's best for you. A good friend wants to build you up, wants you to thrive in wisdom. A good friend wants to help his friend walk according the road that leads to life and not to death. Proverbs 12, verse 26 says this, One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Good friendships are about giving of ourselves to guide for the good of someone else. Bad friendships are about taking from the other only for the good of self. The Proverbs acknowledge that this is often the sinful reality of our world. It's often the case that people choose friendships only on the basis of how that person will benefit them. Our world is very much about selfish friendships, and it happened in the day of King Solomon as well. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 20 says, The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Proverbs 19.4, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Proverbs 19.6, many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone's a friend to a man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far away from he, him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. These proverbs simply articulate a reality in our broken world that people often seek friendships with individuals primarily out of selfish ambition rather than a selfless, godly affection. 
good friendships are founded when there is a mutual desire between two people to build the other up, not to suck from them whatever they can get from them. Good friends earnestly desire the best for each other, truth number one. And of course, one of the ways that we seek the best for one another is through our words, right? From last week. Our words have the power of death and life. We can speak life. And Proverbs 27, 9 says this, right? The sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest, his passionate desire. And what does he do? Earnest counsel. Mark number two of good friends. Good friends speak truthfully to each other. Good friends speak truthfully to each other. We build friendship by using our words to, to not to tear another down, but to build another up. We don't speak lies. We don't flatter with empty flattery. We don't belittle, but we speak truth even when it's hard to speak truth because we love them. No matter the cost, friends compel friends to walk the wise road with them. Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. We, what do we do as good, as good Christian friends? How do we express it? We use our words to welcome one another into the green pastures and still waters and wise roads that lead to eternal life, and we have fun along the way doing it. Christian friends remind one another of Scripture's teachings. And sometimes that means if you're a, actually a good friend, you will say the thing that your friend doesn't want to hear. Right? In Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 28, 23, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Proverbs 29, 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Listen, this is hard in our culture. We've seen this over and over in the Proverbs, but friendships that never have disagreements never involve lively discussion, never call for any kind of rebuke of anyone, never get to the conversations that are of that kind of depth. If your friendships don't include this, then your friendships are probably more like companions than the deep kind of friendships that save you from ruin. Not all of us are going to be this deep level of friend with every single person. That would be impossible to maintain. But all of us should be pursuing this kind of friendship with somebody or a group of somebodies in our lives. Everybody needs somebody who will love them enough to say hard things to them. If you have never loved someone enough to sacrifice your comfortability and safety by having a hard conversation with them, then you probably have never loved anyone enough. I'll say that again. If you've never loved someone enough to sacrifice your comfortability to have a hard conversation with them, you've probably never loved them enough. No more than I can love my own children and never discipline them. 
Can I love my own friend and never try to course correct them to the way of truth? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The worst kinds of friends in the world are the ones that kiss you to your face and wound you behind your back. Don't be that friend. Judas Iscariot was that friend. Good friends speak truthfully to each other. And throughout the Proverbs, this verbiage for friends, one of the things that you'll find is it's often interchangeable with neighbor. There's a, there's a proximity that this kind of friendship requires. And again, this makes sense, right? In a world where phones and text messages and emails and quick travel are not a thing, it's natural that your neighbors, right, <laughs> Those in close proximity to you are your options for a friendship, right? <laughs> you, you didn't get to scroll <laughs> and say, I want this person to be my friend. No, you got to look out your front porch and said, who can I commune with <laughs> that's close to me, right? So there's a sense in which proximity is needed for close friendship. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 10, do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, so somebody that's been a friend of the family for a long time, And do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. So the the Proverbs urging you to go to your friend of close proximity, your neighbor in the day of calamity, rather than a family member who is far, far away. And good friendship requires this kind of trust. Mark number three, and this is a big one. Good friends require vulnerability. Now, I'm going to show you how this connects with the proverb we just read. The best kind of friends are the kinds of friends that live in proximity with you physically, emotionally, spiritually. They know you in a day-to-day kind of way. They know when you're undergoing a particular calamity. Good friendships exist where you can be vulnerable enough, humble enough to go to them when disaster strikes and not be fearful of their reaction or their treatment of you. There is supposed to be a kind of safety in good friendships. You should know they love you even when things get busy, even though they may have hurt your feelings unintentionally. There has to be a trust that they don't have ulterior motives, that they actually care for your good. Friendships are made of the kind of neighborliness where you dwell secure with them. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 29 says this, Do not plan evil against your neighbor, and then listen to how it puts it, who dwells trustingly beside you. You can go to this neighbor, you can go to this friend in the day of calamity because you dwell trustingly beside them on a regular basis. You know they're not going to turn on you. You know they're not going to use the situation to gain advantage over you. You know that you can show weakness, let your guard down, and be yourself, that you can fail them, and they will not use the situation to their advantage. Not only can you go to them with your calamity, but you can go to them with your confessions. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this in his famous book, Life Together. 
about confessing your weaknesses, showing that, uh, that your failures are real. He, he writes this, in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. The more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being. This can happen even in the midst of pious community. But in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into darkness and seclusion of the heart. Good biblical friendship requires the kind of closeness, proximity, vulnerability. Adam and Eve covered themselves and hid from the Lord when they sinned, and we have inherited that same nature. We too feel safer in hiding. We feel safer when we don't have to be vulnerable. And as we refuse to be vulnerable, we simultaneously refuse to have deep friendships. Deep friendships happen when individuals let others see their thoughts and fears and anxieties and past sins and present struggles and future hopes. And after all of that, and you've made yourself fully known, and the other person's still there, now you can be fully loved. I mean, that's what marriage is. It is to be naked and unashamed. It is to be fully known in every way and still loved 20 years later. You have to take the risk of making yourself known and you have to shoulder the beautiful burden of knowing others if you want friendship to happen in your life. And as we pursue this, let me just reiterate, not easy. Who, who's heard the phrase, iron sharpens iron? Everybody's heard that, right? Comes from a proverb, Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Is iron sharpening iron a gentle process? No. <laughs> it is somewhat of a violent process in which you sharpen iron. And when two people come together in friendship, there is repeated contact. <laughs> contact that can strengthen or destroy, sharpen to, be, to make someone usable for the kingdom of God, or bludgeon to make them unusable. One Peruvian pastor said last fall, this is not in the Proverbs, this is just an older Peruvian pastor who said, iron sharpens iron, but sometimes there are sparks. Conflict is 100% inevitable when people come together to be friends. You have two sinners now coming together in proximity, vulnerability, truth speaking, and earnest desire. And the New Testament includes, every letter the New Testament includes, it, it includes the kind of instruction and encouragement we need in Christian communities to navigate conflict that is inevitable. You will never be a part of a, of a relationally conflict-free church. You will never be with a friend that has no conflict. If you're part of a relationally conflict-free church, then it's probably because you're a part of an unhealthy church that is designed to entertain a bunch of individuals rather than cultivate a biblical community. That's the only, you, want, you want total peace at church? Go to one where all the lights are off. You can sit in the back, listen to the music, and leave 
to go home and do whatever you want. You'll be conflict-free. But if you want the kind of biblical community that pushes back darkness in a lost individualistic world and leads people to eternal salvation, you need to come jump in the mess and show one another Jesus. Friendship is the nitty-gritty closeness where we navigate conflict for all kinds of reasons. Proverbs anticipate this reality uh, for all kinds of reasons, some of them uh, more serious, some of them kind of hilarious. Sometimes conflict arises when someone takes joking too far, belittles a friend. Proverbs eleven twelve says, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. Proverbs 26, verse 18 says, like a madman who who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the one who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. You ever been a part of a situation where a joke was taken too far at the expense of someone else? Sometimes conflict arises because friends have spent a little too much time together. Proverbs 25, verse 16, If you found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. (laughs) There is such a thing as too much of a good thing, Proverbs says. And sometimes conflict arises when you have spent too much time together. Go on a mission trip with us to Southeast Asia after a 30-hour travel, and you will experience this proverb. Sometimes conflict arises when one friend is just simply inconsiderate of the other friend's desires. We experienced this slightly. Uh, We did a camping trip with a bunch of guys. Proverbs 27 verse 14 says, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as a cursing. (laughs) I personally am guilty of that in my own household. Whatever the case may be, right, conflict is going to be inevitable between friends, but... There should be a considerable ongoing safety in the friendships because Christian friendships are founded on something that non-Christians don't have. We can forgive a lot because we've been forgiven a lot. And this leads to Mark number four, last one. Good friends forgive often. Good friends forgive often. Conflict does not have to end a friendship. There is hope, there is future in biblical friendships because there's forgiveness. It's to forgive as we have been forgiven. It is to be wronged and to forget about it in such a way so as not to repeat the matter again and again. Proverbs 17 verse 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. It is to be wronged and then to cover that wrong with love rather than to live in it and repeat it over and over again. Good friends are offended, yet they care more for the offender than they do themselves. Good friends get offended, but rather than seeking justice or retribution, they concern themselves primarily with the transformation of that person who has offended them. When someone makes a mistake, a good friend cares more about helping them overcome that mistake by the grace of God than emotionally or relationally punishing them for that mistake. 
Listen to this quote from Gary. Uh, I cannot say his last name. I've thought about that before I quoted him. Uh, he wrote a book called Love That Lasts, and he talks about forgiveness. He says, to extend forgiveness is a precious thing. The one who forgives expresses a willingness to cancel debts and even to absorb some of the bad fruit of the other person's sin against him or her. To forgive means to commit myself to not bring that person's forgiven sin in my thoughts, words, or actions toward him or her at any point in the future for the purpose of accusation. And that kind of forgiveness is hard. That is not natural to us. Where do we find the strength for that kind of Forgiveness. Well, it starts with the forgiveness we've received from God. This quote is fire right here. Listen to this. To forgive someone means to release from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. Forgiveness is undeserved and cannot be earned. Forgiveness requires that you absorb certain effects of another person's sin and then release them from liability to punishment. This is precisely what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. He secured our forgiveness by taking on himself the full penalty of our sin. And remembering what he did to purchase our forgiveness should be our greatest incentive to release others from the penalties they deserved. God has befriended us, though we were once his enemy, by absorbing the consequence of our sinfulness at the cross of Christ. Our, our selfless love for one another has to have its source in Christ's selfless love for us. It's this, this text in John chapter 15. Uh, I remember this is actually a text Kelsey Garcia was reading when she came to faith in Jesus several years ago because she realized what kind of friend she had in Christ. John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another. Now, what's the source? As I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servant. The servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, I chose you, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, why? So that you will love one another. The gospel message is a message about friendship destroyed and friendship restored. We are naturally God's enemies Rejecting him, ignoring him, sinning against him, worshiping anything but him. The record of debt that stood between us and God was catastrophic. It was monumental. There was no way to repair that friendship between God and man. Yet God took on himself that record of debt. Jesus shows God's love for us by laying down his life for his friends. And here's the progression. Jesus loved us by laying his life down for us. His sacrificial love now empowers us to love each other. And our love for each other is now a witness to a very lonely world. Our friendships reflect the selfless love of Jesus for a lost and dying world to see. John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 
This is God's good idea. Friendships exist for your enjoyment, for your sanctification, but they also exist to propel the best news in the world to the ends of the earth that we have a friend in Jesus who's restoring our friendships in a lost and dying world. So this is how I want to close. I want to close with a few reflective questions to wrestle with. Number one, number one, three questions to reflect on as we include our time together. Number one, do you have a friendship with God? This is the beginning of all wisdom. To know God as He really is and to relate to Him as He is. And in the gospel of Jesus, He offers you more than just forgiveness, more than just a ticket out of hell on the last day. He offers friendship with the God of the universe that if you draw near to Him, He draws near to you. And the criteria for that friendship is your vulnerability and your faith to confess that you don't have it all together and to receive the invitation He offers you to be forgiven. God is the best of friends, right? He earnestly desires the best for us. He speaks truthfully to us always. He welcomes your vulnerability, and He humbled Himself to humanity and a cross, and He forgives you often (laughs) and fully. Question number two, do you seek good Christian friendships. Do you seek good Christian friendships? And I purposely say Christian because only Christian friends can be the kind of friend that you really need. Non-Christian friends cannot earnestly desire what's best for you because they don't know what's best for you. Non-Christians cannot speak truthfully to you because they do not know the truth. Non-Christians cannot forgive you enough because they have not experienced forgiveness. And I am always concerned as a pastor. I talk, I talk to teenagers about this all the time, but adults as well. I'm always concerned as a pastor when a Christian finds their primary source of companionship with non-Christian people. I'm always concerned. How is it that you can find the deepest sense of community with those who do not share the deepest part of who you are? That's troubling. If you feel at home around people that are going to hell forever, more so than you feel at home with people that will be in eternity in heaven with you forever. Now, am I saying don't have Christian friends, or non-Christian friends? Absolutely not. We must, we must earnestly seek what's best for our non-Christian friends. We, we should seek relationship with them because we want them to go to heaven with us forever. But they can never be for us what we most deeply need in friendships. If they are, then maybe we should question our own spiritual vitality. We should see it as a part of our spiritual walk to pursue Christian friendships. Number three, last question. Are you a good friend? Are you a good friend? I have so often find myself in conversation with those who lament their lack of friendships. They wallow in this kind of self-pity because everyone else is failing to meet their expectations for friendship, but they're asking the wrong kinds of questions. They're focusing on the wrong kind of thing. It's easy to point at everyone else's failure to pursue friendship with you. It's a whole lot harder to actually be a good friend yourself. You have to persistently and sacrificially strive to be a good friend. Do you ever want the kind of deep, God-glorifying friendships the Bible offers where you have to earnestly desire what's best for others? (laughs) 
Do you speak truthfully to others even when it's uncomfortable? Do you open yourself to vulnerability and give others opportunity to do the same? Do you extend the forgiveness to others that you would hope they would extend for us? When a whole church pursues this together, it becomes a beautiful beacon to an individualistic, isolated culture, a light for the lonely. And people will come to our church for the friendships that they see happening in the church, and hopefully they'll find a friendship with God as the real difference maker. This, let me close together just with the words of Scripture, and we'll pray. This is what 1 John 4 says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent His only Son to the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us. Sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another because no, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Let's pray together and let's respond to the Word. Lord, we, we pray. Help us to be a place of miracle friendships where all of us are every day striving to reflect Christ to fellow sinners. May the gospel of Jesus be proclaimed with our words every week from this place. But Father, may it be seen in our relationships every day with other Christians in this place. Father, we pray, do, do this work in our lives. Help us uh, to walk in nearness to you and one another by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's stand and respond together in song.